You are listening to the Science of Nutrition. When you start down the road where belief and magic replace evidence and science, you end up in a place you don't want to be. What's happening is that there's a globalization of illness occurring, that people are starting to eat like us and live like us and die like us. Your child will live a life 10 years younger than you because of the landscape of food that we've built around them. We live in a world shaped by food, and then if we realize that, we can use food as a really powerful tool to shape the world differently. All right, so I'm speaking with Dr. Michael Rosenfeld. He teaches a series of graduate courses at the University of Washington. Graduate nutrition courses seems to be kind of like the meat and potatoes, if you will, of the nutrition sciences program, which I'm going through right now. He's also a, a researcher. Would you consider yourself, I guess, a nutrition researcher or cardiovascular, cardiovascular disease. disease researcher? Could you give us a little bit of a background on your education and maybe what you do here? Um, I did a graduate degree at the University of Wisconsin, uh, my PhD in combination of biochemistry and nutritional sciences, then came here to the University of Washington <clears throat> as a postdoctoral fellow specializing in cardiovascular pathology. I had my first academic appointment at the University of California, San Diego, working with a group of investigators who were pioneering the concept that oxidative mechanisms play important roles in the development of cardiovascular disease. I was recruited back here to the University of Washington in the early 1990s um, to be part of the nutritional sciences program and also have obtained joint appointments in the departments of environmental and occupational health sciences in the School of Public Health and the Department of Pathology in the School of Medicine, and have been conducting research on a variety of aspects related to cardiovascular disease in animal models since that time. You do a lot of research on atherosclerosis, right? Correct. Walk me through what it is and maybe how it develops. So atherosclerosis is a special type of chronic inflammation <clears throat> that affects the muscular arteries in particular, certain coronary arteries and carotid arteries that feed the brain. And this inflammatory response to a variety of things that get lodged in the blood vessels, in particular uh, fat and cholesterol, leads to eventual occlusion of the blood vessels by formation of blood clots on top of the inflammatory components of the blood vessel which then will block blood flow either to the brain or to the heart, leading to the major killers in our society, myocardial infarction or heart attacks and strokes. Let's talk about the dietary risk factors of atherosclerosis. I presume it's not at all controversial for me to say that high levels of cholesterol in the blood, specifically cholesterol that's carried by low-density lipoproteins, that's a major risk factor for atherosclerosis, right? I mean, that's great. In, in the scientific community, there's, there's no controversy there. No. But it seems that what is maybe less clear is to what extent dietary cholesterol 
will affect circulating levels of cholesterol. So what's the story there? Well, there's a, a lot of evidence that suggests that dietary cholesterol actually has a minor impact on uh, levels of low-density lipoprotein cholesterol. This is true in the general population, but there are those people that are highly sensitive to dietary cholesterol. Most of us uh, will absorb less than 50% of what we eat. Some people will absorb 100%. And so <clears throat> there are a subset of people that are, are highly sensitive to the cholesterol in their diet, but they're a fairly small percentage of the general population. Uh, what appears to be more problematic is the amount of total fat, and in particular saturated fat, in the diet. And for reasons that are not entirely clear, that uh, dietary component leads to changes primarily in the liver that will help elevate the amount of circulating cholesterol, in particular in low-density lipoprotein fraction. Now, whether this is due to a reduction in cellular receptors that bind low-density lipoproteins and therefore reduce the amount in the blood, or whether this is due to an overproduction of the lipoproteins in the liver is not entirely clear. You just said that dietary fat, saturated fat, has a larger effect on cholesterol levels, but that's not entirely clear why? That's correct. It's likely a combination of effects um, in the liver in the expression of the low-density lipoprotein receptor, as well as some effects on overproduction of what are called apolipoprotein B containing lipoproteins, which is VLDL, VLDL remnants, and LDL. And so the likelihood is that both phenomena occur in response to dietary lipids. How much do you know about like maybe the evolutionary basis for the development of atherosclerosis? Because I'm trying to think LDL gets into our blood vessels, becomes oxidized. The immune system responds by recruiting things like macrophages to come in and kind of gobble up the oxidized LDL, and that triggers an immune response, which will end up recruiting more macrophages, and I would think that this would not be very beneficial. Do you know, if, like, why evolution may be selected for this type of response by our bodies, or is it is it like a kind of like a misfiring of some of the immune system? So the the component of the immune system that seems to be responding is in this case, is primarily the innate immune system, which is a very, very ancient component of the immune system. And virtually every species, even uh, eukaryotic species, has some form of an innate immune response. Uh, now, this innate immune response was evolutionarily designed to deal with invading pathogens, meaning bacteria and viruses. It was not designed necessarily to deal with endogenous factors like low-density lipoproteins that become oxidized. The components of bacterial cell membranes that are recognized by the innate immune system are very similar to what forms when lipoproteins become oxidized. So there are oxidized phospholipids on bacterial membranes 
that are recognized by innate immune receptors. Um, these are the same receptors called scavenger receptors or pattern recognition receptors that will also recognize modified LDL. And so from an evolutionary perspective, it was designed not to deal with oxidized lipoproteins, but to deal with bacteria. And yet what has happened is that given our dietary patterns and the levels of inflammation at other locations within our bodies, this all combines then to have an inappropriate and unusual chronic inflammation that affects the blood vessels. Do you think it would be better if our immune system just left that LDL alone, or would it be, in fact, worse if, like, the macrophages didn't go in and, and try to deal with it? That's a good question. Um, if you were to envision a situation without an immune response designed to gobble up the garbage that gets deposited in the blood vessel, what would happen if there was a large buildup of lipid that was not accompanied by an inflammatory response? The likelihood is that it would still have a negative effect because the cells of the blood vessel would be impacted by this buildup of lipid and probably there would be a significant dysregulated function of the normal vascular cells. So this likely would impact the capacities of, uh, capacity of a blood vessel to dilate and contract, which would significantly impact on blood pressure and heart function. So the likelihood is that the deposition of large amounts of lipid in the blood vessel would have a negative impact anyway. However, the, the response by the immune system complicates it even more because that leads to a more rapid dysregulation and leads to more rapid structural changes in the blood vessel that allows the, the blood vessel to break, to rupture. That then leads to thrombosis, and it's the thrombosis that kills people. So although deposition of lipid without inflammation might have negative consequences, it probably would not lead to the number of deaths that we see related to formation of blood clots, uh, inappropriate formation of blood clots that then blocks blood flow to the heart and the brain. It seems from what I've learned that one of the reasons LDL particles are so damaging is that many of them are small and dense and they can, they're able to penetrate the endothelial cells that line the blood vessels, right? But aren't HDL particles even smaller? And why are they not considered to be much of a risk factor for atherosclerosis, or are they? HDL is also subject to oxidation. There is a school of thought that suggests that all of the lipoprotein fractions, classes, can contribute. Now, from an epidemiologic perspective, evidence suggests that the higher levels of HDL you have in your blood, the more protected you are from cardiovascular disease. The reasons for this are still unclear. There is a um, known effect of HDL called reverse cholesterol transport where HDL can pick up excess cholesterol from peripheral tissues and escort that excess cholesterol back to the liver to convert it into bile acids, which then is the only way we can excrete excess cholesterol from our bodies. But 
recently it's becoming evident from genome-wide association studies and other studies that are being conducted from a genetic perspective that people with very high and very low levels of HDL cholesterol may not be protected from cardiovascular disease or may not be uh, subject to increased cardiovascular disease. What has emerged recently is that the functional properties of HDL are much more important. And HDL carries with it many different proteins. Some of these proteins are proteins that play antioxidant and anti-inflammatory roles. So in addition to the capacity of HDL to pick up excess cholesterol, it has the ability to block the oxidation of other lipoproteins and also to reduce the response of, of, of vascular cells to the pro-inflammatory effects of oxidized lipids. So now the field is, is moving towards studies of effects of environment and diet on the functional properties of the HDL rather than simply measuring how much HDL cholesterol you have in the blood. So it's much more complex than we've been led to believe, right? Exceedingly more <laughs> complex, correct. That's always the case. Regarding saturated fat, again, going back to things being more complex, you can't really make a blanket statement that all saturated fat will increase cholesterol levels, right? Because short-chain fatty acids and those types of fat that, that are found in like coconut oil, say, are kind of processed differently by the body and may not have the detrimental effects. Correct. So the saturated fats that seem to be most damaging or most dangerous are those that are of uh, 16 carbons and 14 carbons, etc. Hold on a second. There are certain um, saturated fatty acids that seem to be more dangerous than others. And you, you um, mentioned coconut oil, which are medium, primarily medium chain fatty acids, and um, these don't seem to be as strongly associated with the negative effects of the longer chain fatty acids. That's correct. But I think you're focusing on particular dietary components, but I think what is emerging is that overnutrition in general leading to obesity and the consequences of obesity probably is playing more of a role than any specific dietary component like saturated fatty acids. And the consequences of obesity and metabolic syndrome and diabetes may be m much more responsible for the frequency of cardiovascular disease than the amount of saturated fat that we eat. So you can't really view this in isolation. Could you talk a little bit more about that? So let's say I'm a vegan, but I'm also obese. Like, what is it about obesity? Is it, I'm assuming it's the, the chronic inflammation that's associated with obesity that would have the damaging effects. Kind of explain a little bit more. Okay, so we don't really know exactly what the cause and effect is. So you can look at it from the perspective that obesity leads to metabolic syndrome, which in turn leads to diabetes, okay? But in every case, there are effects on established risk factors for cardiovascular disease. So people who are obese generally will have higher blood pressure. People who are obese will have 
higher levels of blood lipids in general, regardless of whether they're vegan or not. And this will be <clears throat> higher levels of LDL, lower levels of HDL. And then there are effects on insulin resistance, blood glucose levels, the ultimate consequences, for example, of somebody who becomes diabetic where um, there are elevations in glucose, the current thinking would be formation of oxidation products of the glucose can be pro-inflammatory, totally independent of the lipids. There are also major problems that people who become diabetic very, very often end up with end-stage renal disease. And we know that people with renal disease are at the highest risk of developing cardiovascular, of dying from cardiovascular disease. Well, people who have renal disease have elevations in a number of things in the blood, like blood urea nitrogen. And there's something about elevated blood urea nitrogen that is itself pro-inflammatory and induces a high degree of oxidative stress. So you have to think about this from the whole constellation of things that are going on that may be independent of specifically elevations in LDL cholesterol, which then gets lodged in the blood vessel. The effects of the elevations in lipid probably occur very early on and establish a small degree of inflammation in the blood vessel. But we are subject to ongoing inflammation in many, many sites in our bodies. And there's a very accepted paradigm now that inflammation at one location in the body can contribute and exacerbate inflammation at another location in the body. So if, for example, something related to obesity causes greater inflammation in the adipose tissue, the factors that are being made by inflammatory cells in the adipose tissue get secreted into the blood and then contribute to the inflammation that's going on in the blood vessel and then can accelerate that process. So again, you really have to think about all of the constellation of things that are going on in that individual that are apart from just simply looking at saturated fat effects on LDL cholesterol. You've said over and over in class that you believe that we, we are subject to a lot of subclinical inflammation. Do you think that's true for most of the population, whether or not they're obese or whether or not they have some sort of disease or disorder? Absolutely. I mean, I think from an environmental perspective, we, we are subject to effects of things in the air, things in the water, and things in the food. I mean, every time you take a breath, depending on where you live, you may be irritating and inflaming parts of your lung. Every time you eat something that may contain some sort of toxicant, you're contributing to an inflammatory response in your gut. When you drink water that you think is pure, it may be contaminated with heavy metals or it may be contaminated with small amounts of, <clears throat> of other things that would lead to some sort of low-grade subclinical inflammation. Now, it may be these inflammatory responses are rapidly resolved, but if you think about a lifetime of small acute inflammatory responses, what is the combination of these effects over a lifetime? And if you 
have the beginning stages of atherosclerosis probably due to elevated lipids early on in your life. If you were not subject to other types of inflammation throughout your life, the likelihood is that that small amount of inflammation in the blood vessel might not progress. It might if you have continuous elevation in lipids, but if you think about the fact that every day you have some sort of subclinical inflammatory response that may be making the inflammation in your blood vessel a little bit worse. So by the time you reach my age, the possibility is that the combination of all these effects have now made the inflammation in the blood vessel much worse, and then that's when clinical events can occur. I'm curious as to what, what are the landmark cases in your opinion, about cardiovascular disease? You mean in the history of cardiovascular disease research? Well, probably the first landmark observation was by a Russian scientist called Anichkov, who was the first to make the association between cholesterol and cardiovascular disease. He did studies of dietary feeding of cholesterol to rabbits and was the first to make that, establish that association. So that really is probably the first landmark in the field. Uh, I would say after that would be the initial observations of the link between between plasma lipids in the form of lipoproteins and the association between lipoprotein levels and cardiovascular disease. And then from there, the, the studies that then documented that lipoproteins can get trapped and retained within the blood vessel and then from that point on, establishing that atherosclerosis is a low-grade chronic inflammation. And the person that I worked with when I was a postdoctoral fellow who was the, at the time, the chairman of pathology here at the University of Washington, a fellow named Russell Ross, is largely credited with popularizing the idea that atherosclerosis is a chronic inflammatory response. There was, I think, prior to that, more of a accepted hypothesis perhaps that the buildup of plaque in the blood vessel was more analogous to a neoplasia, to some sort of a cancer response that was related to uncontrolled proliferation of the smooth muscle cells in the plaque. But I think this got largely discredited as we were able to show that development of the plaque was more related to influx of inflammatory cells and this chronic inflammatory response. Looking toward the future, what are like the what are the big questions that have yet to be answered with regard to cardiovascular disease? Yeah, I think um, right now there are a number of things that are are really emerging. Again, to get back to the question of inflammation and immune response. I think we are uh, appreciating now that not only is is the innate immune system involved, but the adaptive immune system appears to be involved as well. So that it's not just macrophages and neutrophils and dendritic cells, but T and B lymphocytes appear to be playing a role as well. Uh, My son is is working on an MD-PhD at the University of Virginia, just reading his qualifying exam paper that he sent me for review. He's working on a a particular um, transcription factor that regulates the homing of particular subsets of B lymphocytes into the blood vessel. And 
B lymphocytes can be both antibody-producing cells that will generate antibodies against, for example, oxidase phospholipids that might play a role, and that would be a protective role, but they also can play an innate immune response role that seems to be more atherogenic. So he's working on what factors play a role in recruiting B cells into the plaque. There's now a lot of evidence that macrophages and, and lymphocytes can act, that there are really subpopulations, that they can affect different phenotypes depending on the environment. So they can be highly pro-inflammatory and generate cytokines, factors that are, are highly inflammatory, or they can be less inflammatory and be generating cytokines that are more anti-inflammatory and, and kind of control and dampen the extent of inflammation. So I think this is one area that is getting a lot of interest is how can we potentially change the phenotype of inflammatory cells in the blood vessel to reduce the amount of inflammation. So I think that's a very, very active area of investigation right now. Other things that are, are I think, probably going to be the major areas of focus in the future, again, gets back to the question of environment. My lab, because I'm part of the Department of Environmental Health, we've been part of a consortium of scientists here that have been investigating the effects of air pollution on atherosclerosis in animal models. Um, there's lots of epidemiologic evidence that suggests that areas that have the highest levels of particulates in the air generally derive from either diesel engines or gas engines or a combination of both or, or particles that are generated from coal plants and things like nitrogen dioxide and, uh, sulfur, and sulfur and other things that are generated by coal plants in particular can combine to cause inflammation in the lung oxidative stress and contribute to ongoing cardiovascular disease. I mean, I think there's a lot of evidence that when air pollution levels are high, there's an increase in heart attacks and a number of people being admitted to hospitals. Now the question is, how this, how is this working? Uh, we've also been working on the question of respiratory infection, low-grade respiratory infection, and its contribution to atherosclerosis. So I think a lot of this is going to emerge that uh, lots of different environmental factors are in small ways contributing. And then finally, it's the genetics. I think uh, you know, we are in a, a period of the most spectacular genetic use of genetic approaches to unravel the cause of chronic disease. And I think, you know, as we've talked about in class, if you look at all of the potential receptors and enzymes and cytokines and other proteins that have been linked to the disease process, what's becoming apparent is that in the human population, there are likely polymorphisms and, and mutations that may have a very small functional effect, but from a population perspective, the, the combination of all of these genetics, I think ultimately is going to explain the disease. Now unfortunately, from a therapeutic perspective, if there are 200 possible genes playing a role, and each one 
can account for one or two percent of the risk for having a heart attack than coming up with drugs that target each of these small effects is not going to be profitable. What I think is emerging now is ways to look at how genes and particular proteins interact and using new methods of, of information technology and computer science we're able now to show by processing huge amounts of data how individual proteins interact with say 500 or 10,000 other proteins and to come up with effectors, effector proteins that have the largest impact on the largest number of other proteins. Okay. So if you then can target key effector proteins, even if a mutation in that effector protein, there are very small numbers of those mutations in the population, you could then develop drugs that would target those particular effector proteins and have a much more dramatic effect on all of the other downstream proteins and genes. It's funny, I, I got into this, it's like all the roads lead back to genetics and you can't get away from it. And I got into this whole nutrition thing. Half of the reason was to avoid genetics, but you can't get away from it. <laughs> no, you just can't get away from this. So I, I think in, in the near future, this is where we're going to have the most dramatic breakthroughs, uh, I, I think, is going to be to try to understand where the key hotspots are with regard to protein-protein interactions. All right, well, Dr. Rosenfeld, thanks for speaking with me today. Let me have some more that's it.